Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. All right, so we're kicking into a couple of weeks of uh, kind of talking about identity and unpacking a little bit about who are we, right? And the world that we're living in right now is uh, really, in so many ways, full of people wrestling with identity and trying to figure out um, who they really are. The, one of the challenges, I think, that a lot of us face, uh, either you might be going through this personally, or it might be a, a challenge for you in the relationships you have with other people and the conversations we have, is that we're sort of going against a system that has really, since the time we were little, been at work to try and tell people um, kind of who they are based on what they do as opposed to who they really are. And so like, for example, like from the time kids are really young, parents say things to them, well-meaning, good things. I'm not saying any of these are bad things. It's just kind of how it, uh, life plays out. But they'll say things to them like, oh my gosh, you're so strong. Look at you. You're such a strong little boy. I bet you're going to be a great construction worker just like your dad. Or look at how I've never seen you without animals. And sh- you know, you've always got all these stuffed animals around you. I bet you're going to be a veterinarian. Or are you going to be a firefighter? Or even when the a teacher sees a little kid, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? And so we ask them. And then later in life, we start to take aptitude kind of tests to discern what you'll be best suited to do. And then in high school, you get guidance counselors aimed at helping you figure out, like, what should you spend your time and money on so that you'll know what you should do. And then everything is it just kind of built around like trying to figure out what you should do, like what's your purpose, what will you be good at? And then there's this illusion that if you can answer that question, if you can find the right thing, if you can do the right thing, then then you will be happy. You will have contentment. You'll have peace. And the problem is, I think that those are good questions to look at. They're important things to care about. But I think when we care about them first, we get the cart before the horse. Instead of figuring out and helping people understand who they are. And when you understand who you are, it's different than what you do. And that is hard to unpack in the culture that we're in. And when people are trying to answer the question of who am I, what's my purpose, like what am I made for, and then they try to like answer it by finding the right job or the right career or the right major, it leads to a lot of confusion. And you wonder what that confusion looks like in the everyday real life of people. Just a few simple examples. For uh, us, we're pretty familiar because we live in college land. And so we know that these statistics are pretty true. And probably a lot of us have connection with this. But the surveys say that 80% of college students change their major at least once. And the overwhelming majority change it multiple times, like three times. And then outside of college, in your everyday life beyond that, depending on which statistics and and research you look at, that says that you change jobs an average of uh, like six to eight times by the time you're 25 years old. It's, it's It's this underlying current of I'm unsettled, I'm not satisfied, I'm not content, and I'm trying to solve it by doing the right thing, as opposed to, like, what would it look like if we really knew who we were? What would it look like if we really knew who we were? And and so I would just say that one of the things I want to challenge you to do as we're talking about this stuff 
for a couple of weeks is for some of you, you may feel like, I know who I am, right? I, I know who I am in Christ, and you may have some comfort and some confidence in that, and I'm super grateful for that. I just want you to listen to this uh, through the lens of knowing that you are surrounded by people who don't have it figured out, who aren't confident in who they are. They don't really know how to answer that question. And so maybe you'll glean some things from this week and next that might help you have um, really important conversations with people that are on the hunt to try and figure out who they really are. And so um, as we dig into this, I would just say that if we're going to really focus on figuring out who we are, then let's go to the source, to the author and creator of life. And just kind of putting my cards on the table, you, can, you might look at a lot of different ways where you could figure out who you are. I feel like the best place to start is with the one who created us. And we get some ideas about who God says we are and what God thinks about us and, and how we were made and who we were made to be when we dig into God's word. And I think the psalmist in Psalm 139 really gives us some cool insights to this perspective of kind of who we are. And so Psalm 139, I just want to read this with you. It says, um, verses 13 through 18, says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still there with me. I think one of the challenges we face is that a lot of people don't grow up knowing this, like understanding that they're made by God, that that God knew them from before they were born, that, that God was involved and intentional in their design. And not only do a lot of people not grow up knowing that, but, but I think beyond that, the people that do grow up and have uh, great Christian families and grew up going to church and have heard things about who God says they are and what God says his involvement is in your life, it's one thing to hear it. It's a whole nother thing to really like grab, you know, grab hold of it and believe it. And I think a lot of people have heard what God thinks about them and who God says they are. But, but what does it look like for you to just really own that and believe it? And so we're going to kind of stretch a little bit to, to wrestle with that this morning. Um, I think a lot of people don't answer the question, who am I? God says I am and therefore I am, right? Like it, when people say, who am I? a lot of other things come to mind. And the, the reason is kind of obvious. It's because for most of us, uh, the way we define who we are has come from the people and circumstances in our life. Like other people throughout our life have shaped who we think we are. Circumstances have shaped who we think we are. And so 
all of us have been told by parents and coaches and teachers and media like who we are. And, I, and I'm not at all saying that it's just a bunch of bad stuff. It's good and bad. It's this big mixed bag. And, and so I would just say that if we were to stop and, and answer that question, who am I, and you were to really ponder that, I think that some of the things that we might hear based on conversations I've had with people I think some of these answers might be the way some of you might describe yourselves. This is who you really are, right? Like you might say that you're the one that always gets good grades. You might say that you're the one that tries harder than everybody else or that you're the one that's always a mess. You might say that you're the one that somehow seems to always get abused. Like you're somehow always a victim. You might say that you're the one that'll fight anybody, anywhere, anytime, any place. Come on. You might say that you're the one that's never good enough. You might say that you're shy. You might say you're loud. You're confident. You might say that you're afraid and anxious or that you're always going to be the person that's overweight and too heavy because that's just the way your family is, that that's just who you are. You might say that you're blessed with good looks or you think of yourself and you think you're a joy or you're always late or you're my favorite or one that unfortunately comes up more often than you would want to know is that people actually think about themselves and say about themselves that uh, I'm an accident that I, I, I know for a fact that I wasn't on purpose. And they actually believe that that's who they are. And so in your notes, I put some spots for you to just wrestle with some stuff on your own. I know many home groups are not meeting this week, and so that might be something for you to just do on your own to dig in and think a little bit about, like, if you're writing the story of kind of your identity book, you know, like, who am I really, have you stopped and really thought about like what what do you think about yourself like who do you really think you are and so there's a couple of spots there to just kind of help prompt you to to chew on that and think about that uh, not just the negative stuff but the good stuff and so i want us to kind of switch from our own identity books that we've been writing and people have been writing about us and go to the good book and see what God has to say about who we are, about who you are. And in order to do that, you got to go to the beginning, right? And so we're going to start in Genesis because that's where God's story starts with people. And you can take a deep breath. I'm not going to read all of Genesis. So, whew, all right. Just the first 40 chapters. Just kidding. Genesis 1, right? It starts off with this really cool imagery. This is like poetry. This is like writing art, this creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God just rolls out this event, this creation event, and it's told like a poem, and, and every word out of it is from God speaking. God speaks, and things come to be. 
And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be dry ground. And God said, let there be a greater light and a lesser light. And God said, let there be seas and waters that would pull together. And then God said, let them fill full of fish, which is awesome because they're so fun to catch. And God said, let the, uh, the skies be filled with birds and then the earth be covered with livestock and animals. And all the way through, there's this, this refrain of just God said, and then it happened and God said, and then it happened and God said, and then it happened. And he keeps going all the way through. It's good. Oh my gosh, that's good. Like, oh, that's so good. Like it, it, on one hand, you can kind of look at this and go, geez, he's kind of proud of himself, isn't he? Like, you know, he did it and it's good. I don't know if you've ever made a really good dinner and then you sat down and took a bite and you went, dang. That was good. Like, you're not boasting. It's just a fact. It's good. Like, that's the way God is with creation. It's like, that's good. And then God takes a a turn in the creation account. Something different happens than has ever happened in the whole account of creation. God starts to do something totally different when he makes man. He gets involved and he forms man, person, this first person out of the ground, and he forms them into a person in his own image and likeness. Male and female formed like God, and he breathes life into this first person. Unlike anything in all creation, God said, and it showed up. God said, and it showed up. God said, and it showed up. And all of a sudden, God's got his hands in the mix. He's doing something special when he makes mankind. We're made in the image of God. Nothing in all of creation. Nothing in all of creation. When you think about it, like it's just fascinating. I love watching those planet Earth shows and all that stuff about the animals and the underwater stuff. And it's like you think about all creation, the most beautiful, intricate bugs and butterflies and crazy things to the most exotic fish you could ever dream up. The colors and the, I mean, the, the dream, the imagination God had to make like a cuttlefish that's like can turn all kinds of colors like a disco ball. Like it's amazing. And you look at all of the things, the huge animals, the trees, the water, all of it, all of the imagination and creativity and all of creation, nothing, nothing gets to pin on their chest. I am made in the image of God. God made me in his likeness. Nothing else has that. That's one thing you can know about yourself for sure is that you are unique in all of creation made in the image of God. And all throughout the creation account, God says that things are good. He sees man made and he says this is very good. And then he does this cool thing where he invites Adam to this first man to uh, bring all the animals to him. And it's, I love the kind of the imagery. It's like to see what he will call them. Like, this will be fun. I wonder what he's going to come up with. And he lets Adam participate in sort of naming and kind of creating, like, what are we going to call these things? Like, he puts him in the process and involves him in things. And at the end of this deal, not only did Adam get to go to the coolest zoo ever in the history of the universe, right? Like, did anybody like going to the zoo? I love going to the zoo. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like, but you have to walk around all the animals. I would love to be at the kind of zoo where the animals come to me. Sound is really cool. Maybe a little terrifying. 
Uh, and so at the end of this whole experiment, not only are the animals named, but nobody is found suitable. There's no counterpart found for Adam. And so God does something amazing. It is so, so cool. It, it, it's, it's recorded in Genesis 2.21. It says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I propose that is a good place to be, fellas. Something we want to look at in this, pa- in this little passage here that is often misquoted, misunderstood, is this idea of God taking a rib out of Adam. It's really uh, not a great translation of the word in Hebrew, which is, I put it in your notes, it looks like Tesla misspelled, but it's, you say it, uh, Selah is the way you pronounce the word. And it's an architectural word that's used to describe the side of a building. And so it actually means side. And it's sort of de- de- describing kind of structural uh, things in context. So I gave you some examples in your notes you can go look up on your own. But it shows up in scripture hundreds of times. And it refers to the side of a chamber, the side of a you know, well, the side of a building. And so really, if we want to have a, a, a more accurate understanding of what God is doing here with this first man, this first person, is he causes him to go in this deep sleep, some supernatural God anesthesia, And he literally pulls a side out of that first person. He pulls out a side of that first person. And and that idea that we see in scripture too, that word that we hang on to like a helper suitable for him. When you unpack that and study what that word really means, it's more accurate to understand it as a counterpart or even sometimes it could get translated as a deliverer. And you might be like, whoa, that's kind of interesting. What's that all about? Like this idea, like God saw that it was not good for this person to be alone. Like people were not designed to be alone. And he pulled aside out of that first person to be a counterpart or deliver. Like the idea of delivering that first person from loneliness from isolation, from being alone. Like he made a counterpart. This, the, the imagery is this idea that that first person, it's almost like they're looking in a mirror. And that's why you can see the first uh, person, Adam, saying like, holy smokes, this person is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. A lot of times when this gets taught on, and I've done this many times too, it's easy to sort of joke that when Adam saw the woman, he was like, hubba hubba. Right? Like, whoo, finally, a naked lady here. That's what I was been waiting for. That's not what he's saying. It's fun to joke about. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, like, he's seen all of the animals, and he's like, listen, this is bone of my bones, built like me, stands like me, structured like me, looks like me, flesh of my flesh. Like, there's nothing else out there that has a suit like this, and you do. It's like, it's like you, get to under, you get to see this little snapshot of the first person seeing the first person. And he's surprised in a good way. 
one like me, a counterpart, right? And it's just a cool thing to imagine that scene. And so just out of the gate, looking back in Genesis at the beginning, we see some really cool things about who we are. One, that, that we're made on purpose, right? You were made on purpose. That, that just one of the most amazing signs of love by God is that the minute he saw something was not good, like everything was amazing and so good, but the minute it wasn't good, he set out to fix it. That's a loving God. You are loved by God. He makes sure that we have counterparts, companionship, community. It's like, you're not meant to be alone. I've got a solution. And the last thing I want to kind of just spend a little bit more time talking about is value. You're valuable to God. Now, this is the kind of thing that, in all honesty, I'll just like say, say it as it is. Like, this sounds a little bit like Hallmark card kind of stuff. Like, you are worth more than anything to the Lord. Or, you know, God loves you so much, you are worth a lot to him. And some, some, something you would see on a cross stitch at your grandma's house, you know, like, you know, you are so valuable to God. And it's like, those are nice things to say. They're true, but honestly, when we say them, they sort of just kind of bounce off a little bit. Like, does it really stick? Do we really believe it? It's such an abstract thing to try and wrap our brain around. Like, you're worth something. And so then we're like, well, then if I'm worth something, then how much is that person worth? Because they're a lot better than me, and they're a lot worse than me. So how, do, like, how does God figure this out? And we just get stuck. Or we just ignore it altogether. And so I, I want to help you. Today, I want to help you this morning, like maybe get your arms around, like sink your teeth into something a little more concrete to help you understand how valuable you are to God. And I want to help you understand how valuable your friends and family are to God because you're going to have conversations with people that you love. And sometimes you can sort of say, I don't know, I just know in my gut that I'm valuable to God, but it's hard to communicate that to someone else. I want to give you some imagery and help you understand maybe a way to talk about how much God thinks you're worth. Uh, in order to do that, we've got to kind of roll back the clock. We're going to go back and look at a conversation between King David and Solomon, his son. You may be familiar that King David, God made it clear to him that he was not going to be the one to get to build uh, the temple of God in Jerusalem. He was going to have to pass that responsibility on to his son Solomon. And so uh, God gives David really detailed instructions about building the temple, the house of God, where God is going to reside, like literally where God is going to live amongst his people. It's quite an extravagant place and an extravagant process. And it's not going to be in your notes. It's going to be up on the screen. It was kind of long. So I just want to read it to you. But as I'm reading it, I really want you to think about the amount of money that's going into this, uh, the amount of intentionality that's going into it, the craftsmen and artisans that would have given their life to this, all of the everything that will go into building designing, executing this project to build the house of God. And so it goes like this. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, 
It's in First Chronicles uh, chapter 28. Uh, it goes in verse 11. Then David gave Solomon the plans for the temple and its surroundings, including the entry room, the storerooms, the upstairs rooms, the inner rooms, and the inner sanctuary, which was the place of atonement. David also gave Solomon all the plans he had in mind for the courtyards of the Lord's temple, the outside rooms, the treasuries, and the rooms for the gifts dedicated to the Lord. The king also gave Solomon the instructions concerning the work of the various divisions of the priests and Levites in the temple of the Lord, and he and the specifications for the items in the temple that were to be used for worship. David gave instructions regarding how much gold and silver should be used to make the items needed for service. He told Solomon the amount of gold needed for the gold lampstands and the lamps, and the amount of silver for the silver lampstands and the lamps, and depending on how each would be used. He designated the amount of gold for the table on which the bread of the presence would be placed and the amount of silver for the other tables. David also designated the amount of gold for the solid gold meat hooks. Solid gold meat hooks. It's a really expensive butcher. Uh, that used to handle the sacrificial meat for the basins, the pitchers, and the dishes, as well as the amount of silver for every dish. He designated the amount of refined gold for the altar of incense, and finally he gave him a plan for the Lord's chariot, the gold cherubim, whose wings were stretched out over the ark of the Lord's covenant. Every part of this plan, David told Solomon, was given to me in writing from the hand of the Lord. David's making it clear, this isn't just my idea. I'm not just dreaming up some extravagant thing. This is God's design for his own house. Kind of reminds me a little bit like if you could sit down and just kind of go, what was, what's my dream house? And you could design your own absolutely perfect, no expense spared, everything in the world at your disposal, what would you want to live in? That's the kind of resources God had, and this is his design. Uh, picking it up back again in Chronicles it says, then King David turned to the entire assembly and said, my son Solomon, whom God has clearly chosen as the next king of Israel, is still young and inexperienced. The work ahead of him is enormous, for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals. It is for the Lord God himself. Using every resource at my command, I have gathered as much as I could for the building of the temple of my God, and now there is enough gold, silver, bronze, iron, and wood, as well as great quantities of onyx and other precious stones, costly jewels, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. And now, because of my devotion to the temple of God, I am giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction." This is in addition to the building materials I've already collected for his holy temple. I am donating more than 112 tons of gold from Ophir and 262 tons of refined silver to be used for overlaying the walls of the buildings and for the other gold and silver work to be done by the craftsmen. Now then, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord today? Then the family leaders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the generals and captains of the army, and the king's administrative officers all gave willingly. For the construction of the temple of God, they gave about 188 tons of gold, 10,000 gold coins, 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 3,750 tons of iron. And they also contributed numerous precious stones, which were deposited in the treasury of the house of the Lord under the care of Jehiel, a descendant of Gershon. The people rejoiced over the offerings. 
for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And King David was filled with joy. You just kind of soak in that for a second and you just think about this is this is not the detailed list. This is a little bit of a paraphrase from David to Solomon. Like the amount of money invested, the amount of talent, engineering, design, purpose, just absolute beauty, like the best of everything on earth in abundance to build the house of God, the place where God would be with his people. It's hard to imagine just how amazing that place would be. And along comes Jesus, much time later, and and Jesus changes everything. Jesus introduces a new covenant, a way for people to have relationship with God, to receive salvation, to receive forgiveness, to commune and have have, uh, God with them in a way that is unlike anything the earth has ever seen at this point. And, and we know from the scriptures that, that when people put their faith and trust in Jesus, that not only do they receive salvation, but they receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that when someone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they believe in their heart, that then they'll be saved. And beyond salvation, they actually get the Holy Spirit, like God's Spirit, to come and live with them. And something absolutely amazing happens. Something that people read all the time in the new scripture and they think about or hear about in a a glance in a study, but probably just don't recognize the value statement that it is about what God actually thinks you're worth. Like Paul says to some believers in Corinth, um, trying to help them understand about who they are and what their value is. He says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not own yourself or you do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Like we went from David handing the baton to Solomon to build the most extravagant thing ever dreamed up on the planet, the most valuable place, the most intentional, beautiful, fascinating place where God was going to live amongst his people. And throughout all of history, the place where God resided, whether it was a tent or a tabernacle or the temple, like it was always incredibly important, incredibly intentional, and it was the place where God was with and among his people. And and when we put our faith in Jesus, you become that temple. Not figuratively, not like a metaphor, like for real. You literally become the place that God resides. You get to 
have God with you. You get to, instead of having people travel from near and far and all over the place to come to the one place on the planet where God resides among his people, God looked at you and said, I love you so much and you are worth so much to me. Like, I will go with you because wherever you go, you will take me with you. And I love this imagery. I've heard this before. I picked it up from the Bible Project video, but they talked about how like, we get to become mobile mini temples. And that, like, that's what God thinks of you. And it's such a hard thing to wrap your brain around. Like, like You are valuable to God. When you start to think about that, that God will be with you, he, he will be with you and dwell, give you his spirit, And all throughout history, you think about where God resided among his people. And now he says, I'm in with you. It's pretty profound. I think it says a lot about who you are and who God thinks you are. You're made on purpose, you weren't made to be alone. God built you, designed you on purpose to be in community, to be in relationship. God loves you. God thinks you are really immeasurably valuable. When you think about the temple, it's like you'd have a hard time putting a number on what that was worth, and that's really what God wants you to know. There's really not enough money out there to help you understand what you're worth. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.